Our sermon text is from Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through chapter 3, verse 6, and you can find that on page 489. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new, one, the new from the old, and the worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing that, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said, we're studying the gospel of Mark this winter, and we're really only looking at the first half up until Easter. And the first half of the book of Mark is trying to answer for us one simple question. The Gospel of Mark is trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And this week, the answer that Mark is giving us to that question is that Jesus is the one who calls sinners to true obedience. Jesus is the one who calls sinners to true obedience. And uh, we've been reading through this uh, straight from the beginning, but now we're getting to the point where the people around Jesus are beginning to respond to the message they're hearing. Um, and as we just had read to us, uh, we saw that some of those people, they turn and they follow him. Some of them drop everything and go after him. 
and others begin to plot against him. This passage ends with people planning to destroy Jesus, which of course is ultimately going to end in his death. But what you notice is there is no one in this story who reacts in a neutral way. People who hear what Jesus has to say, they respond with passion. And I hope that today we might be able to recover a little bit of that. I hope that we might be able to experience a little bit of that passion in our response to him today. Because uh, as I've noticed recently, I, I, I feel like we have lost a lot of this. I feel like we have lost it in the culture, and I feel like we have lost it in the church as well. Honestly, when I'm talking to people about Jesus, when we're hearing about what he did and taught, I think people tend to respond to him in the same way they respond to the Big Bang Theory. And, and, and I don't mean actually the scientific Big Bang Theory. I'm talking about the TV show, the Big Bang Theory, right? I was just reading about that this week. Do you know that's the number one comedy in America? That 20, min, 20 million people watch that show every single week. But I have never met anyone who says that's their favorite TV show, right? People just watch it, I guess. They're like, eh, it's fine. It's on. I'll watch it. And I think that's, that's honestly how we think about Jesus. Like, yeah, he's fine. He says some good stuff. He's definitely in the, the top five influential people. Mark says that's not an option. Mark is calling us to respond with passion. Mark wants us to see that the gospel is actually a very radical message. That it is a, an amazing message or it is an offensive message. But it's anything but fine. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these four brief stories all together, and we're going to see how Mark tries to prove that point, how Mark tries to show us this radical gospel. And he does that by first showing us who the gospel message is for. Then he shows us what makes this message so radical. And then finally, he tells us what kind of life it's supposed to produce. So he shows us who the message is for, what makes the message so radical? And then finally, what kind of life it's supposed to produce? So let's, let's get into it. Um, who is this message for? This first story, the calling of Levi, is kind of the quintessential Jesus story. It's one of those stories that I imagine people think about when they're just thinking about basically what did Jesus do. It's the kind of thing we know that Jesus did. And Mark wants us to, to think that. Mark pulls this story out for a reason. Um, a few weeks ago, we saw the story where Jesus called some of his disciples, but Levi wasn't included. Mark made a point to separate this out a few paragraphs later. He wants to emphasize something going on here. He wants us to see that, that Jesus made a habit of dealing with undesirable people. Jesus made a habit of dealing with outcasts. And we find that out right here in the beginning of our passage, verse 13 and 14. He tells us that Levi was a tax collector. And if you've been around the church or if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you've probably heard that being a tax collector was a bad thing. It was not a desirable position in society during that day and age. And I always knew that, but this week as I read more about it, I just I've started to realize how bad of a job this actually was, how looked down upon these guys really were. So Levi is Jewish. That's, he has a Jewish name, and yet he is a tax collector working 
for the government. And these guys were in a position where they were able to be incredibly unjust. They were in a position where they got to decide how much they would oppress the people that came by. They were in the habit of squeezing every single penny uh, from the people that passed through their region. Uh, One scholar said, such officials were detested everywhere and were classed with the vilest men. When a Jew entered the customs service, he was regarded as an outcast from society. He was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court, and he was excommunicated from the synagogue. And in the eyes of the community, the disgrace extended to his entire family. It was considered a corrupt and greedy position. So as I'm trying to think about who that is in our society, one person came to mind. Do you guys remember uh, Martin Screlly? Does that name ring a bell? Do you know this guy? The, the pharma bro is what they called him. He's like in his early 30s, and he got to be in charge of this big pharmaceutical company. And pretty quickly, he increased the price of this life-saving drug by 5,000%, uh, which was, had a devastating effect on the world. And when people questioned him about it, when he got a ton of pushback about it, a ton of negative press for it, He was quoted as saying, I really regret my decision. I realize now I could have raised the price even more. Right? This greedy, loathed person, someone who is synonymous with evil and corruption. And Jesus walks by this guy, and he says, follow me. I wonder if the other disciples were there thinking, come on, Jesus. I'm not sure if you know what this this guy does. I don't think he's the kind of guy you want associating with you. But Jesus didn't make mistakes. In fact, he immediately goes to Levi's house and throws a party. And he brings all of Levi's outcast friends. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they're totally shocked. And when they express their concern, they start to question him about it. Here's what Jesus says. Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, there's two quick things I want us to see from that quote. Maybe maybe that's stuck in your mind. Maybe you've heard that before. And the first one's obvious. It's what we were just saying. Jesus went to the outcast. Jesus went to the outcast. He was known for hanging around the marginalized and the undesirable people in society. And that's why today, the church is also known for hanging out with the... No, wait a second. That's not right, is it? No. Jesus spent time with undesirable people, and yet for some reason, the most marginalized people in our society are afraid to come anywhere near the church. Instead, today, the church has become the place for people who are well-dressed, and respectable, who have 2.5 kids, whose lives are free from trouble. I, I, I think we can't get any further in this passage before we stop and ask, especially if you're a Christian here in this room, we need to ask, who are the despised people in our community? And, and do we care about them? And maybe if you're thinking of an answer to that question, Maybe for some of us, 
the convicting answer is, is to talk about the poor or the sick or the addicts. Definitely on a national level, the church is having a problem caring for refugees. But if I'm judging by my own heart, and if I'm judging by my Facebook feed, I think that the place a lot of us might go here, the people that are despised and outcast in this community, might be people who are on the other side of the political spectrum. Right? Aren't those the people that we imagine Jesus wants nothing to do with? Aren't those the people we think about and, and we, we assume that Jesus, if he came here today, those are the people he'd avoid? The people who, are, who think differently from us. But Jesus went to those people. Jesus went to the outcast. He went to the people who, who the world perceived as their enemy, and, and we should too. So that's the first thing. Jesus went to the outcast. The second thing, Jesus calls to sinners, right? Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when we read that, we might think that's Jesus saying, I don't want anything to do with you Pharisees. Don't we kind of get that from the text? We, we see Jesus and he's saying, I came for these wild people, not for you guys. I came for these guys, not you. But that's not really what's going on. We know that because we see how Jesus lived his life and ministry. We see the passages even that we read this morning, the ones that follow this. Jesus doesn't ignore the Pharisees, right? He doesn't avoid the scribes. When we read the passage about him and the disciples going through the fields and, and plucking the grain, or when we read the passage about him healing the man with the withered hand in the synagogue, in all those interactions, he's dealing with them, right? He's teaching them. He's instructing them. He's calling to them. He's calling to them as well. He's calling them to see what? He wants these Pharisees to see that they're sinners too. He wants them to see that, that their sin of thinking that they're good enough on their own is just as big of a problem. That their sin of self-righteousness is just as destructive as the sin of greed and corruption that they see in Levi's life. I mean, that's the point, right, of the prodigal son story. I'm sure we're all familiar with that one. If you remember in Luke, Jesus is again, he's teaching to scribes and Pharisees, and he tells the story of this wayward and sinful child who takes his inheritance early and goes off to a foreign land and squanders it, and then comes back to his father and asks for forgiveness, and he promptly receives forgiveness. But the main point of the story is that elder brother. It's the older brother who's outside when the younger brother returns. And he hears the sound of the celebration that his father is throwing. And finally, he goes to his father and he says, I've done everything you've ever asked me to. And nobody's ever thrown me a party. I've done all that's required of me. Where's my reward? And if you remember that story, how does the parable end? It ends right there with, with the good son standing outside the celebration. With the good son fixed on his own goodness. Fixed on his own performance. 
That's Jesus. That's Jesus standing out in the field here, calling to these people. But they don't realize that, that being a good person, that living a, a relatively good life, that following all the rules is just the flip side of the depravity they saw in Levi's life. Right? Both things are, are ways that we avoid God. Right? On one hand, we, we run and we go as far away from God as possible. We live as far opposed to his, his laws as we can. But on the other way, we try to be as good as we can. We try to, to be as moral and upright as we can. And both ways are to say, I don't want to rely upon God. And honestly, this one is much more dangerous than this one. Because for the self-righteous sinner... They are incapable of doing the only thing Jesus requires of us, admitting their need. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount by describing what it's like in his kingdom. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom comes to us when we realize that we are spiritually impoverished when we realize that each and every one of us can only come to God empty-handed, that our good deeds mean nothing to him because he sees our hearts. That's who the message is for. The message is for sinners. And that brings us to the next point. What makes this message so radical? Right, so far, not the most radical thing you've heard a pastor say, Jesus came for sinners. Maybe you're expecting to hear that this morning, and I'm glad. I don't blame you. That's what I should be saying. But the remainder of this passage, the, the next few pieces of it, Jesus begins to show us and explain to us the real nature of the gospel. And it starts off with these, a couple of interactions. First, people come to him and ask him a simple question. In verse 18, they say, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? They say, you, they fast, you don't. What gives? And the thing they're talking about, this fasting, was not really a, a biblical requirement. Um, the Bible only would require, the Old Testament only required fasting near the Day of Atonement. But the Pharisees had gotten in the habit of fasting twice a week. It was a ritual thing, and Jesus wasn't doing that. And in his response, he says, well, we're not fasting because I'm here. We're not fasting because it's a time to celebrate, and it's not a time to mourn. And then he gives this kind of cryptic answer. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the old from the new, and, the, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, so the essence of this strange image is he's trying to say your way of practicing, your way of doing things is incompatible with what I've come to do. Your way of, of keeping the rules is incompatible with what I've come to teach you. If you try to fit my message within your law, it's not going to work. And then Mark shows us what he means. 
These last two stories is, is just a, a visual aid to Christ's teaching. First, uh, the Pharisees come upon the guys and they are walking through a field and they're picking the grain and they're eating it. And the biblical requirements for the Sabbath was pretty simple. It says you're not supposed to do your ordinary work on the Sabbath. But instead, this is a day reserved for rest. It's a day reserved for worshiping the Lord. Now, the Pharisees, uh, they were a religious sect who was committed to keeping this law as best as they possibly could. So they tried to do whatever they could to make sure they wouldn't accidentally break the law. And that means they had taken the concept of work and put it into 39 different categories and said, these are the 39 different kinds of work we can't do on the Sabbath. And one of those was called threshing. It was picking grain. And so they saw these guys, and, and they begin to question. And then the second encounter is very similar. They come upon Jesus in the synagogue, and there's a man there, and his hand is deformed. And the law says, the only works of mercy you are allowed to do on the Sabbath are life-saving acts. And obviously, this guy is, has had this problem for a long time. He's not going to die from it. And so they wonder, is he going to heal this man and break what they perceive as the Sabbath law. In both instances, in both of these examples, the Pharisees come upon Jesus and his disciples, and their goal is to correct their religious practice. They want to show Jesus how to properly practice their religion. But instead, Jesus and, and Mark describing these stories shows us that there is an enormous difference between religion and the gospel. That's, that's what we see here. Jesus is showing us that there is an enormous difference between practicing religion and the gospel. The religion of the Pharisees was always about what we had to do. The Pharisees were always telling people what they needed to do to make themselves acceptable to make themselves right, to make themselves holy enough to be accepted by God. And it's not just the Pharisees' religion. That's what, that's what all religion is about, is it not? All religion is about what we need to do to make ourselves good enough. The things we need to, to do to make ourselves acceptable. It doesn't matter if it's Western religions that tell us here's the rules you need to follow. Here's the standards you need to keep. Or Eastern religions that tell you, well, here are the practices that you need to have. Here's the, this, the way you need to meditate. Here's the way you need to think about your life. That's the way you're going to achieve enlightenment. That's what you need to be. Or even secularism, right? Even secularism has its own set of standards, its own set of rules to live up to, what you need to do to live a good and a, and a happy and a fulfilling life. This week I met a young Muslim man uh, just down the street, um, and we were talking about life. We were working together at, a, uh, at community servings, and um, he told me his life story, which was pretty interesting. He said that he had been incarcerated, uh, that he had made a long series of bad decisions his whole life, and that he was constantly getting into trouble, and one day he ran into a man on the street. And this man told him, basically, 
the problems that you have in your life are your own. You are making a series of bad decisions. And then he, he, he gave him this uh, illustration, and uh, the guy I was talking to said, this is what made perfect sense to him, and everything clicked into place. He said, there are two kinds of, of cups. There are clean cups and dirty cups. And you have the choice about which kind of cup you're going to be. You can either clean out your cup, or you can continue to, to fill your cup up with grime. And he said that's what he needed to hear. And that day, he went home, and he, he, he cut his hair, and he joined a mosque, and he proposed to his girlfriend, and he's never looked back. And you know, as I was talking to him, I let him know, like, that's great. I'm really excited to, to, to know that you've you know, made this progress in your life. I think that's wonderful. I'm, you know, I don't want to criticize that at all. It's like, but I, I'd say the, the big difference between our worldview is that I don't think there are any clean cups. And, you know, he agreed. He said, oh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think I'm perfect. He said, you know, my cup isn't completely clean. I, I still have to keep trying. And that is the difference. That is the difference. Religion teaches us that there is something we always have to keep doing to make ourselves acceptable. We always have an action that we need to take. We're never quite there. There's always a, a new discipline we have to practice. There's new rules that we have to obey. But Christianity says our salvation is not in what we do, but it's in what Christ has done. Christianity says that Jesus is the only clean cup that there's ever been. He's the only one that that kept the letter of the law, and not just the letter of the law, but the heart that was behind the law. That he was the only one who's ever lived in actual holiness, free from self-righteousness and sin, because he was the Son of God. And when he died on the cross, 